Isaiah 49, verse 6. The Lord says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. is revealed. Have you ever thought about what will change whenever Christ is revealed? Because really, you know, there's actually two different times at least that we see Christ himself being revealed. His first coming, and then also we know that he's going to be coming back at his second coming. So I want us to kind of combine some of the thoughts in both of those times when Christ is revealed. And let's take a look at a few passages together from, from the scriptures. Let's start by going back into the Old Testament. Because, you know, when Christ came the first time, there were several passages that spoke about him, but maybe not in ways that people might have been expecting at first. For example, in Isaiah chapter 49, we get this, this passage. Uh, this is just one of several different passages, which speaks about some servant that God is going to raise up. 
And as you look at this servant, you find out that he is going to be this, this suffering servant. And for those of us you know, who are, who are Christians, we're familiar with a lot of these phrases that appear from Isaiah because we sing about them. We connect them with Jesus Christ and you know his first coming and what he did. This is one of those passages. Isaiah 49 verses 1 through 7. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and gather Israel to himself, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob, and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings will see you and stand up, princes will see and bow down, because the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. So this passage, it speaks about this, this servant. I've already told you that, you know, this passage, we as, as Christians, we connect this with, with Jesus Christ, but I want us to kind of notice this bigger picture and this servant that God is talking about raising up. You know, he first starts to address uh, these, these groups of people. Um, and it, it's interesting to me, and I probably should do a little bit more of studying in this phrase because uh, there's probably something kind of uh, even deeper going on right here. But in verse 1, we see that he is speaking to this group of people called you islands. Now, you know, I hear that and I'm like, I'm not exactly sure what you're talking about. But he also defines it later. He says he calls them you distant nations. So this phrase, uh, the, the distant nations, we already know he's not talking about Israel. He's talking about the, these other nations because Israel is just one nation, really. And he calls them and connects them with these, these islands. So here these phrases, he's speaking to people that are far away, you know, that are kind of removed from, from who you would normally be thinking of, who are maybe kind of the people in your little bubble that you're used to seeing. No, 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 that's not who he's talking to. He's talking to somebody farther away. So for Isaiah to um, receive this from God at first, he knows God's picture of things is not about Isaiah's little bubble of people or even Isaiah's bigger you know, nation of people, that nation of Israel. He is talking about, God is talking about these distant nations farther away. And then he also speaks about this servant and what he does in God's relationship to the servant. In verse 2, he speaks um, about how... Um, I'm sorry, it's still verse 1. At the second half of verse 1, he talks about, Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. You know, this talks about how much care and precision our God goes into whenever he chooses a prophet, whenever he chooses a servant. You know, in this case, we see that it's being connected with this servant. 
and he is called just a little little bit later in verse 3, you know, you're my servant. But then he seems to be speaking about Israel here, and, and perhaps now you notice that he's kind of mixing some of these images together. And, you know, sometimes people look at this servant, and they say that the suffering servant from Isaiah is talking about Israel. However, I would suggest to you that I, I think that we see something even beyond that. And the reason why I think that we see something beyond that is because in the New Testament, we find out that Jesus is the one who takes these statements and some of these phrases, and he, he's not concerned with just the nation of Israel. He's concerned with those other nations, the islands, the distant nations that are referenced in this passage. This is the, the ones who are supposed to receive uh, this, this information, and it was to them. It was this good news to them. Now, this might have been very different than what Isaiah was used to hearing, or even people in Isaiah's day were used to hearing. Because in verse 6, you know, God makes the statement. You know, have you ever thought about this? He makes a statement, it is too small a thing. Okay, you know, sometimes God does things because, uh, you know, sometimes God does big things because he just says, it's too small to do it otherwise. And in this case, he says, it's too small for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. Which, by the way, Jacob and Israel, they could not have restored themselves on their own. They, they just, they couldn't do it. Uh, many times throughout history they tried, but really they were totally dependent upon God to bring them through that and to restore them. But God says, it's too small. It's too small of a thing just to restore the tribes of Jacob. Even though, I mean, if you're part of the tribes of Jacob and if you're part of Israel... That's a really big deal. But God says it's too small. God has bigger plans. Sadly, a little bit of an application for, for us today. Sadly, we oftentimes just settle for the small things. You know, we might want to just be, if we were a tribe of Jacob, so to speak, we might want to just be brought back and, you know, kind of restored and, and the nation of Israel be okay. That's what we might want. God wants something so much bigger. And if we aren't careful, we might settle for the smaller things whenever God really wants something so much bigger for us. And here in this case, in verse 6, he says that it's too small just to focus on this one nation, Israel. He says, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. This is once again why I would say that what we see here is talking about Jesus. Because in Jesus Christ, and only during the time of Jesus, did we see the salvation of our God reach the ends of the earth. It didn't do it any time before that. It did not do it through the nation of Israel. It was never going to do it through just you know the nation of Israel. It was going to do it through Jesus, the Messiah, through Jesus, the one who was prophesied, the one who is this suffering servant. And we see that um, in all of this, this is the plan of God. God has these bigger plans. But so many times, perhaps you've even read this passage, you know, so many times we read passages like this and we read them in the Old Testament and we think, oh, well, that is, you know, that's for uh, another group of people. Sometimes even we might open up the New Testament and think, oh, okay, well, this letter that's written to, um, you know, maybe the Romans or, you know, the church at Corinth, you know, to us, we, we start to look at that and we're thinking, I don't live in Rome. I don't live in Corinth. What does that have to do with me? And it was also written 2,000 years ago, even if you go into the, the New Testament. So we could easily look at this book and think, what do these things have to do with me? But I want us to always point out that God has this bigger picture. Here in Isaiah, 
I mean, this was thousands of years, you know, almost 3,000 years, not quite, but almost 3,000 years ago, Isaiah was written and God was planning something big during Isaiah's day. Really, this has been the plan of God since the beginning of, since, well, before the beginning, that his salvation would reach the ends of the earth. And they do this through Jesus Christ. Now let us turn to a passage in the New Testament. To the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to look at the beginning of 1 Corinthians. This is one of those passages that as we start, we might think, okay, this is a letter that's written to Corinth. It was 2,000 years ago. What does it have to do with me? I don't live in Corinth. But yet, as you look at, at who it's addressed to, I think we find something amazing, uh, especially in this book. Now, we don't always find this in every single book of the New Testament, but we do find it here in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 uh, through 9. Uh, although first, let's just look at the first two verses uh, to begin with. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Did you notice who this letter is addressed to? Yes, it starts off like Paul as he normally would. And by the way, he's, he's also writing this with uh, his brother uh, Sosthenes here. Uh, not physical brother, but spiritual brother uh, Sosthenes. And in verse 2, he says, To the church of God in Corinth. Okay, so here we're still seeing some church that was 2,000 years ago. But then as you look at it, and notice this that I've put in bold and underlined here in verse 2. It's not just to the church of God in Corinth. It's also together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. You know what that means? The book of 1 Corinthians, it was written to you. It was written to me. You know, it's written to modern day Christians. Now, sure, there's some things in, in there that are, you know, specific to Corinth, but we can learn these principles and we can apply them. Now, this is quite literally true with the book of 1 Corinthians, but I would suggest to you that, honestly, if we look at these other books in the Bible, in the Old Testament even, and most certainly in the New Testament, we will see that, yes, while these books are not addressed to us, there are things we can learn from them because this book that we are reading is the Word of God. There's lessons to be learned. So, how does this letter that is also addressed to us, just in case you want something, that nice little personal touch to you, Let's look at verses 3 through 9 now. Starts off very similar, once again, to how Paul writes and starts to address people. But pay special attention. He starts off and he says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given to you, uh, given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech, with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. When you look at this passage, what is Paul saying to the church of God in Corinth? And also, remember, what is Paul also writing with all of those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all Christians everywhere. Well, he's telling them that, look, because they are Christians 
And because of this grace that has been given us, verse 4, because of this grace that's been given us through Christ Jesus, guess what? Jesus has given us everything that we need. You know, verse 5 starts talking about this, the different ways in which he has has blessed us and how he has uh, provided for us. We also find in verse 7, he says to them and to us, therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift. Isn't that interesting? You know, as we look at the, the spiritual gifts that are mentioned uh, in the scriptures, there's a handful of them. You know, there, there's quite a few. I don't know exactly what, what number are specifically listed, but those spiritual gifts that you see, you can find some of, uh, of the um, them referenced in 1 Corinthians. You can find them in, in other passages as well. And those lists uh, are given to us, and we see that some of them are what we might look at as a little bit more like miraculous types of gifts. And some gifts are very similar, very much like everyday things, like sometimes the, the Spirit enables people to teach or to have faith or, or love, you know, those types of things. You look at those and you think, okay, well, doing miracles on the one hand or, you know, being able to uh, to, to prophesy, we think that those are like, you know, kind of these, these miraculous type things and these other things we don't always think about them as much because maybe we see them a little bit more frequently in our everyday lives. However, what we find out in this passage is that, look, you do not lack any spiritual gift. God has given us this balance throughout time so that we will be prepared. And he also says in verse 7, Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gifts. So don't think that you are lacking You know, as, as the church. This is another reason why we are called to come together as the church. Because you, as an individual, um, you don't have all the spiritual gifts. No one Christian is ever supposed to have all the spiritual gifts. But we all together have them. So we all together are found to not be lacking any spiritual gifts. Verse 7, as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. This comes back into the, uh, the title of this sermon. When Christ is revealed, we see that he speaks to them and to us as if it only makes sense for us to eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. Is that how you wait for Jesus to be revealed? Do you eagerly wait for that moment? I hope that we can be Christians who will learn to eagerly wait for that day. We also find out that what is that day going to look like? In verse 8, he says that Christ will keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is going to keep us firm to the end. He can do that. He can help us if we only keep following him. We can be found blameless on that final day of the Lord in which we will all stand before God and we will be judged. Now, taking all these things and recognizing these are written to you, these are written to me, these are written to us. We do not lack any spiritual gifts. We do need to eagerly wait for the the uh, for our Lord Jesus to be revealed, and we can be assured that we will be blameless on that day. What is that day going to look like? Now, there are several passages in, uh, in both of the Testaments, especially in the New Testament, that gives us these images, that uh, these, these scenes that we see, the final judgment day. I want to turn our attention to one of them. In Matthew chapter 25, this is how the scene is set. Sometimes kind of people compare this to a parable, but you know, it only kind of slightly starts off as a parable, but then you immediately realize this is talking about 
the judgment. What judgment? Matthew 25, beginning of verse 31, uh, going down to verse 33. When the Son of Man comes in all uh, in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. So here in this passage, we see that the Son of Man is going to be coming in his glory. That, that's the, the scene that is set. The Son of Man is a phrase that is so oftentimes connected with Jesus Christ himself. So whenever he comes, all of these angels are going to be with him. And then we also see in verse 32 that all the nations are going to be gathered. So you have this huge number of people. In fact, I don't know that we've ever seen in the scriptures this number of people. Uh, gathered together for anything because you have all of the spiritual beings, you have all of the human beings, and they're all gathered together. And what is happening right here? We see that the nations in verse 32 are going to be separated because he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. This is where, you know, many times this might be kind of connected with parables and it has that element. You, you see that the shepherd separating the sheep from the goats is there but you also find out that this is about as far as it goes. Yes, in verse 33, he says that sheep are going to be on his right and the goats are on his left. And, you know, we're used to that, uh, those types of languages. But what does it mean for those people who are on his right and the people who are on his left? He addresses each group in their own turn. Let's take a look at the first group. Verses 34 through 40. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So we first look at the ones that are going to be on the right. These are the sheep. These are the ones that are invited. He says, Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance. What is this inheritance? The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. This is this wonderful statement, inviting them to come in and to be a part of what God has been doing since the creation of the world. Now, he gives them a reason as to why uh, they are invited in. By the way, we do. I would, I would caution us uh, about reading uh, what happens right here. Because what we see, this, this judgment that, that is described, um, it is based on completely you know, what, what they did in their lives. Now, we also know that it's, it's not just about the good things that you do for those people around you. It's also about, you know, following God and actually being faithful to him, faithful to his word, faithful to his commands that he has given to us. However, this scene does focus, and sometimes this is what we need to focus on too. It focuses on how we treat the people around us. When we see people who are actually in need of, of some sort, do we reach out and help them? Because the righteous are people who do reach out and help them. In fact, um, the king starts saying, 
you know, I was all of these things. I was in need of some sort, and you helped me. And the people answer him in verse 37, you know, the, these sheep. They, they answer, Lord, when did we see you in need and, and help you? And he explains it to them in verse 40, that whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. This is a wonderful lesson for us to learn. For those on the right, the ones who are going to be pleasing to God are the ones who saw people in need and did something about it to help them. Can we learn to be those types of people? Let's look at the next type. Verses 41 uh, through the end of, of this section right here, verse 46. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They will also, uh, they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or needing clothes, or sick or in prison, and did not help you? He will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So here we see the ones on his left. The ones on his left, they are told, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Completely opposite, completely different from what those on his right were told. But now we see the reasons are so very similar. And it all comes down to people in need. Seeing people in need and helping them. The ones on the left, they were just, they were so confused. They said, well, when did we see you in these situations? You know, as if, well, I would have helped you if I had known. But the king's point in all of this is teaching them that, look, it's what you do for these other people, these least of these you either do or do not do for me. That was the message from the king to both of those people groups. So what about us? What, what type of, of day is this going to be for us? Which side of the king will we find ourselves on? When Christ is revealed, which he most certainly will be, we know that he's going to be coming back, and when Christ is revealed, which side will we, will we be on? What are you willing to do about it now? Because all of these things, they have to do with how we live our lives right here and right now. And it means that we have to make a choice every single day to follow the King. So that whenever Christ is revealed, we will be ready and we will find ourselves ready for that day. We want you back. We want you back. We want the sheep back in the fold. We want you back. We want you back. We want the coin back in its mold. Lost like a sheep that went astray. Or a son who dared to roam. Come, Come back to the faith. Come, Come back to your God. Come, Come back to the fold. you back we want you back we want the sheep back in the fold we want you back we want you back we want the coin back in its mold oh please don't stay there in the world
back to your God. Come back to the fold. Come back to the fold. We want you back. We want you back. We want the sheep back in the fold. We want you back. We want you back. We want the coin back in its mold. Though you have wandered far away, you can come back to your home. Come back to the faith. Come back to your God. Come back to the fold.